0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.
1: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the
2: podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode number 107. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we talk about the latest in GPS technology with Matt Alexander of Anatom Field Solutions. Let's get to it. All right, before we get started... Here's a quick bio on Matt. Matt has worked as a field biologist all over the country and has always been a tech geek. He began assembling a mobile GIS mapping solution in 2010 to replace Windows handheld GPS equipment and paper data sheets. It sounds like that's today's lightsaber, like you got to assemble your own system just to, you know, be legit. (laughs) Today, he runs a GPS equipment sales and rental company that services the whole U.S. and every industry that has mapping needs. But first... Welcome, Paul. How you doing, man?
3: Uh, okay, I think I've been uh, kind of in API hell with a very what should have been a very simple programming project, and it's uh, turned into anything but. But aside from that, good. How are you doing?
1: Nice. Not too bad. Not too bad. Keeping it. Uh... Keeping it going, I, I've got some new work stuff that I'm that I'm going to be working on and working with here shortly, and it's going to actually be my app of the day. So I'll talk about that in the app of the day segment. For now, I, before we get to our guest Matt today, I've got to mention something because I was such an idiot for not saying it back on episode one hundred and five when we were talking about that was the good, fast, cheap pick two episode, mm-hmm. and we were I mentioned specifically that there are no programs or computers out there that are specifically built for archaeology that are in, you know, popular use. And, uh, you know, because we adapt things for archaeology in a lot of cases like like GIS we're going to talk about today. Esri wasn't built for archaeology, but we use it for archaeology, right? Mm-hmm. Wild Node wasn't built for archaeology, but we use it for archaeology. And Now we're building modules for archaeology. Well, one that I completely forgot to mention, and we just had him on as a guest just a couple months ago, was in Terrace Registries uh, from uh, Michael Cappers And, Terrace Registries was built over in Europe as Archeolink, and it was converted, his, his version here was converted to Interrace Registries. Go back and listen to that episode. I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes to it. But it was built specifically for archaeology. And so if you're looking for something from an infield uh, really built for excavation, to be honest, um, but he's adaptable to other things. But if you're looking for excavation and uh, collections management type stuff, uh, for archaeology then check out in Registries and we'll have the links to that in the show notes I had to mention that before I forgot and we got out of hand here <laughs> so because he sent me an email and he's like hey heard your podcast this is built for archaeology it's like god ah, damn it you're right <laughs> so okay so let's bring on our guest Matt Alexander how's it going man good thank
2: you for having me on
1: Great, great. So I got introduced to you actually through uh, a colleague of mine at Wild Note, because you guys were talking about different things. And she was like, hey, you need to talk to Matt. He's got some cool stuff going on. And um, so I went over to your website. And uh, we'll, we'll get into all this stuff. But there's just, I like what you guys are doing over there from the blog, the sort of training aspect and, and everything you're doing. So why don't you just give us a short introduction to yourself and, and what you're doing with this? What's your company called? And, and I mean, what's the what's the point behind all of it?
2: Yeah, great. Thanks. So our company is Anatom Geomobile Solutions. And as you can tell from the name there, uh, Geomobile, our focus is mobile mapping. So our focus is getting away from the handheld Windows Mobile rugged GPS units that we've all used and seen over the years or decades for some of us. And helping people transition away from that to being able to use their phone or tablet as their actual data collector, their Mm -hmm. interface. But along with that, we have to find a high-accuracy GPS receiver to be able to get us a better accuracy for our positioning. So with that, we can use what we call the Bluetooth GPS receivers. And that way, we can get anything from sort of consumer-grade, you know, three-meter accuracy to professional sub-meter accuracy, which I know your field needs, just like the folks in the wetland delineation field. Mm -hmm. All the way down to actual survey grade uh, centimeter uh, level accuracy. So our focus is really helping people do that transition from what they're accustomed to using with Windows Mobile uh, handheld devices to being able to use a smarter mapping app and have a much bigger variety. You know, back in the day, there was, you know, maybe a dozen mapping apps available for Windows Mobile And now with iOS and Android, uh, gosh, there's probably literally hundreds of versions.
1: I got a question for you right off the bat here so we can get this out of the way. You guys rent equipment um, as well as sales of equipment as well, right? Yeah. So why? You must get this all the time. And and I have my solid answer for this, but I want to hear your answer for this because I rent equipment too when I need it. Why rent when you can buy? What is the what is the benefit of renting from you guys when I can just go on eBay and and pick something up? You know, super cheap or or buy brand new.
2: <laughs> sure, no, that, that's a good point. I mean, really, the whole rental component to our company came about from the fact that I worked as a field biologist uh, all around the U.S. for mm-hmm. state and federal government and private firms and a lot of what I did working for private consulting firms was renting equipment, right? You know, the old Trimble Geos. And so, when we looked to transition to this mobile solution, there just wasn't anybody out there. And there was nobody that was really offering advice and there was no one renting or selling full kits. So, when we developed that for this company, we were really excited to take everything that we found annoying with renting and fix it for our rental clients. So, (laughs) The advantage of renting is you don't have to put up, you know, a big cost expenditure right off the bat and then hope you can keep it busy enough to to get it to pay for itself some point down the road. Instead, you know, you can get your hands on the latest equipment, our technical support and service to help you along the way. And then a much smaller price tag for that rental period. And for the companies that really like to go that way and then just pass the cost on to their client as far as the rental equipment is concerned, every couple of years you're always getting something brand new instead of buying mm-hmm. something and you know, mm-hmm. ten years down the road you're complaining about it, but no one in the company wants to buy a new one because they spent a lot of money on that, you know, piece of equipment ten years ago.
3: Right. I have a follow up to that. Actually, um, back in the day, we used to uh, rent a lot of survey equipment, total stations and the like. And a big advantage of renting versus buying was that uh, when we'd rent it from a reputable surveying firm, they would, uh, you know, they'd calibrate, clean and calibrate between each use. Mm. And so we'd mm-hmm. end up with things that were highly calibrated. Is that still uh, with the kinds of equipment that you're using? Is that a factor?
2: You know, the kind of calibration that you're doing with lasers isn't really necessary with today's mm-hmm. G- GPS or more accurately to call it a GNSS uh, receivers. And the reason I say GNSS is because that means that it can actually track and utilize more than just the American GPS constellation. It can do additionally GLONASS and maybe also the European Galileo satellite. So, if it, that terminology to be more correct, we say GNSS, which is Uh, Global Navigation Satellite System. But with this stuff, the beauty of it is instead of having what we used to deal with, with rugged Windows Mobile devices, which are an all-in-one, right? So they're a terrible computer and an okay GPS. Well, now the future where we're at is we've pulled them apart. So we say, okay, let's have a computer and let's let it focus on being a computer. Well, our smartphones are darn good computers compared to computers eight years ago. And then that allows the GPS on its own to focus on being a GPS. And when all of a sudden we get better quality in our GPS system and its positioning. So, as far as that sort of, you know, calibrating, it's not necessary since it doesn't have lasers and we're not making sure the measurements are all correctly. But what we do personally at our company is we have roof-mounted antennas because we're in Portland, Oregon, it rains a lot. Uh, so, whether it's a rental or a new product, everything gets hooked up to the roof-mounted antenna, we run it through its paces, make sure it's tracking everything correctly, and then you know we send it off to the client. So, there's not necessarily the same type of calibration, but we do spend a lot of time testing our equipment to make sure that it's good to go when it goes out to the client versus I'll have clients where they'll make a purchase, doesn't get used all winter, Then they pass it off to the field person and maybe they forget to test the antenna cable or to be sure that it's working. Person gets out in the field and realizes it doesn't work. So there is an advantage in using our rental system because, you know, we guarantee it's going to come out of that box when it shows up on your doorstep and it's going to be ready to rock and roll from from time one.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. You hit on some of the points why I ran too, is I, I always want, I want to make sure I have the latest thing because not just because I like having the latest thing, which I do. I mean, I watched the Apple WWDC keynote yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get out my credit card, but of course none of it's ready yet. <laughs> but I think I think when you're looking at increasing efficiencies in the field, some people, they get they get so used to the degradation of their equipment because sometimes it is so slow, you don't even notice it. And before long, Man, you're 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 managing workflows around the speed and competency of the equipment you're using, and you don't even realize it. When if you had something newer, and you're like, I can't afford to buy that new thing, or I can't afford to rent it, or something like that. But if you had it, you'd be able to work a lot more efficiently and and quickly if you did have it. I think if that makes any sense.
3: Well, certainly yeah, more efficiently than if you end up in the field uh, miles from any place and you find out that that critical charger or cable is busted,
2: yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah or or the winter went by, and there wasn't a firmware update that was done before you get in the field and <laughs> you don't have cell service and and your yeah. your receiver's not behaving as well as you would have thought it would
1: yep yep quick question on uh submeter g p s and well not just submeter but the uh like the bluetooth add-ons, which as archaeologists we always think of that as submeter because to be honest, anything between submeter and what your phone or tablet already provides is not very useful, right? We either need sub-meter or we don't. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's there's no in-between with most of the stuff that we're doing. So there's a few different um, models on your website that you guys sell here. I see a bunch of different things from the Bad Elf to the EOS line and, and other things. If an archaeologist is looking for sub-meter accuracy or meter accuracy, what do you suggest? What do you personally suggest that, uh, you know, is probably... The, the benefits outweigh the costs.
2: Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, you know, I've, I used a lot of it in the field before I switched full-time to our company here that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And the Bad Elf GPS, you know, they're a funny little device. They're, you know, the size of a stopwatch. They have huge battery lights on them and they've got some cool features, but they just don't have that sub-meter accuracy, you know. Right. And even their newer model, the Bad Elf GNSS Surveyor, it's really in truth a one to two meter device and, and they state it as such. And we've field tested all of our stuff on a test course that we had uh, established by a professionally licensed land surveyor using a total station. So we know that our points underneath tree canopy are exactly the position that they're supposed to be. So we can really test all the receivers and compare them. So for your guys's group of, you know, field surveyors, really uh, the EOS Arrow 100 submeter receiver is really the best choice on the market. Um, I mean, not to get too sales pitchy, but the reason why we settled on that, because we were an agnostic reseller and, and we were selling, you know, five different brands back in 2016 until we really put them through their paces and said, okay, if I were to go back in the field and start doing surveys again, what would I take with me? And that's how mm-hmm. we settled on the EOS Aero 100. And, And the one thing that really helps set it apart from the other competition is the fact that, you know, it will, well, two things really. So it'll Bluetooth connect to iOS, Android, Windows 7, Windows 8, Windows 10, Windows Mobile. It'll work with everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the real key feature to it is that it can track and utilize simultaneously all four available satellite constellations right now. And four is amazing. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you guys were mapping back when the only constellation available for navigation to the public was the American GPS. And a a day we could use seven of them in the open, we were super excited. Mm -hmm. But now with the EOS Aero 100, it can do the American GPS. It can do the Russian GLONASS constellation. It can do the European Galileo. And it can also do the Chinese Beidou constellation. And the beauty of that when you're working in areas with either rugged terrain in the sense of canyons and ravines or tree canopy or both combined is if I have a GPS receiver that can only do GPS and GLONASS and I'm standing in the open and let's say I'm using uh, 16 satellites combined and then I go up under tree canopy and for argument's sake, we'll say we lose half of those satellites. So, now I went from 16 to 8. So, that's going to greatly decrease my accuracy if I have an Aero 100 and I'm standing in the open right now with all those extra constellations, I might be using 22 to 24 satellites for my position. So, if I Mm go under that tree canopy, now I'm talking, you know, um, 11, 12, maybe 13 satellites. So, it's going to be double what the competition could do with just GPS and GLONASS or, yeah, GPS and GLONASS. And then that just greatly helps us get our uh, accuracy as tight as we can. Because regardless of the brand of GPS, GNSS receiver you're going to use, it's always going to lose accuracy when you go under tree canopy. And that sure. is because the signals are line of sight. They're too weak. They're not as strong as radio and cell service you know, signals. So they get blocked by tree branches, and then that introduces uh, various types of error.
1: Yeah, we lose signal a lot here in Nevada because of just mountain ranges too i mean we've Mm -hmm. got more unnamed round mountain ranges than any other state in the union and uh you know you get into a tight little valley or you're just coming over a hill or something like that and sometimes man you lose line of sight with everything including your crew (laughs) so
2: (laughs) (laughs) and on the flip side the folks that work in cities have the same problem it's just their buildings instead of you know (laughs) the mountains next to you
1: nice nice I've got some other questions, but I think before we get to segment two, I want to know this. Um, what do you think is the one thing you wish all your potential clients or people you talk to about GPS knew? Because you must get one or two questions all the time. And you're like, man, if I could just tell the world this, then we'd be
2: great. And it's probably that uh, satellite signals are line of sight and that they mm-hmm. can't go through objects. That would probably be the most unknown component to folks that are using gps and even if they've been using gps for a decade they may not still uh, kind of put two and two together there Mm -hmm. and along that there's an issue that we've all had and, and i used to do it wrong too but you know if you're using a garmin or a trimble geo or some sort of handheld gps that antenna is internal and normally it's placed right above the screen and that's kind of if you look at the body it's kind of that bend right there What people don't realize is when you're standing in the sun and you hold that GPS up to your chest and turn your head so your head's shading that GPS (laughs) receiver so you can see your screen and take your point, your body's blocking maybe 60-70% of the satellites it was using to track. So, Hmm. even though it looked good initially, when you actually start punching in that that point data to collect your position… Uh, You may have gone from a sub-meter position to two or three meter accuracy without even realizing that you had caused it. So that's really kind of the one thing I wish I could, you know, kind of mentally push out to (laughs) the whole United States.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah, that's one thing I always tell people when I'm either teaching them how to use a GPS, usually some kind of trimble model or something like that that we have in the field, uh, is, is face south while you're taking the point. Up here in Nevada, you know, it's just you're just going to get better satellite reception if you face south, right? Depending on wherever you're at, you know, that's just typically how it goes, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and that's are.
2: and that's kind of become a a little. Less necessary because the oh, new good. receivers have the addition of Galileo, and they have the addition of Beto. Mm-hmm. and there's just so many satellites now that fa- facing south. Yep, that's definitely something that we're all accustomed to, and you should be doing with the older models that can't use as many constellations. But now with the newer ones, with so many constellations, just getting that. The funny thing is, you look goofy doing it, but really. What you should do is right before you tap that screen and collect that point is to actually kind of hold it out at arm's length uh, about the height of your head so that your body's not blocking anything, tap it with that stylus, then bring it down to your body, shade it with your head so you can see the screen and type in whatever information you have. But the the south thing, a lot of that was to try to make sure that we were pinging the SBAS satellites and mm, that's where right. our submeter corrections are coming from. Mm
1: right
3: well related to shielding um it's been a long long time since i've done any real gps mapping but uh i mean we're pushing a couple decades now (laughs) at the time i had a lot of trouble i was working in yemen i was uh, working you know next to cliff faces frequently and so there's a lot of trouble with getting good readings not just because of what was shielded by the cliffs but also because of reflections is that still Mm -hmm. such an issue or has that gotten better with all the extra satellites that you can read
2: the The reflection is the multipath error where it bounces off that cliff first before it reaches your receiver. So, right. we haven't eliminated that. The good thing is is that the more satellites we add overhead, the more a high-quality receiver can ignore what it thinks is a problematic signal and focus on the ones that aren't bouncing off that cliff face. Yeah, that's good to know.
1: Okay. Well, on that note, let's take it to break and we'll come back and we have a lot more questions with Matt Alexander back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H.
0: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.
1: Welcome back to episode 107 of the Archaeotech podcast. And we are talking all things GPS with Matt Alexander Matt, there's a couple terms that I want to talk about, and I've wanted to do this on this podcast for a really long time because we we throw a bunch of terminology around, and especially new people in the field might not understand what the heck we're talking about. And Mm -hmm. I'll start with one that's right on your website because it's one of the, I guess, classifications or qualifications for the different GPS devices you can get. But what is RTK?
2: Ah, yes. Uh, (laughs) RTK stands for Real-Time Kinematics. Mm -hmm. And basically... What happens when we switch our correction service from kind of what we're used to using with a standard GPS receiver to the real-time kinematics is we're speeding up how quickly we're consuming a correction algorithm. And so, the technology is a little bit different. We start using additional frequencies beyond a standard sub-meter receiver. And then that also greatly increases our um, ability to get really highly accurate uh, data, I mean, down to a centimeter.
1: Okay. Can this be adjusted on different devices, or is it just it is or it isn't there?
2: Yeah, so that's a good question. Basically, what we think of in our field uh, in the GPS space as an RTK receiver is one that has the standard L1 frequency, which is what all GPS are using uh, for their basic frequency to get their position Um, An RTK receiver typically is going to be one that has an additional frequency, uh, L2 is what has been uh, in use for a long time. And then there's also this new one on American Satellites that's called L5, and that's only a few years old. Uh, We're actually really excited about that one. But what happens is if we are getting uh, an RTK correction service coming into our receiver and... It's using L1 to get its position, and L2 is making it help us get our accuracy really fast. I mean, within seconds. Uh, with today's RTK receivers, like the one that we sell, the Arrow Gold, if I was in a parking lot and uh, I had it running and the RTK feed was coming in uh, via cell service, my corrections through cell service, my position from the satellites overhead, I could actually walk across the parking lot, and as soon as I stop with my survey pole and I look at the bubble level, it's already gotten down to its fix. Mm.
1: Yeah.
2: So that's that's really the interesting thing about RTK is it's just super fast and it's super accurate. Now, technically, you can feed RTK to a standard submeter receiver, an L1 only frequency receiver. But if I were to do that same methodology, first, I'd have to stand in the parking lot for maybe two or three minutes to get it down to maybe sub foot. It won't go all the way to centimeter typically. And then I walked across the parking lot and stopped to take a new point, whereas the full RTK receiver is going to get my centimeter fixed within a second or two. Uh, that L1 only frequency receiver that I'm I'm forcing to try to use RTK corrections, uh, I might've stand there another three minutes to get it down to sub foot. So that's okay. the big difference is the speed. And then the price obviously it costs twice sure. as much for a full RTK receiver.
1: Now I've heard people think, because you, you hear, you see things spelled with a K when, when they think they're spelled with a C. And I've heard people say that RTK stands for real-time correction. They just spelled it with a K for some reason. <laughs> <We're> <laughs> a correction.
2: <laughs> right. Right. <laughs>
1: So can you explain the difference between real-time correction and, and RTK? I mean, I, obviously, they're two different things, but just to put that out there.
2: Yeah, I mean, so RTK is real-time kinematics, and basically, it's just a different type of correction algorithm mm-hmm. that the receiver is consuming. Real-time correction, so there, you're right, there's no RTC. Um, but basically, <laughs> what's beautiful about technology that we've come so far is Post-processing is really a legacy methodology. We really don't have to post-process anything anymore because when they designed post-processing and we kept using it for as long as we did all through the 2000s, it was because our GPS could only use GPS satellites to get our position. And uh, even before that, the military was scrambling it. So we had to be able to apply some sort of correction to it to get it down from like 100 meter horizontal accuracy down to maybe 5 to 10 meters. But today, there's so many satellites helping us get our position that we just call it real-time uh, because you don't need to post-process it. It's just a whole workflow that's not necessary anymore. Mm-hmm. People are mm-hmm. really entrenched in it. I've even talked to some people that say they enjoy the process. Uh, most people <laughs> don't. <laughs> because right? The software is expensive and the process is time-consuming. But when we say real-time these days, it just means that, hey, man, You know, if your receiver's been, you know, purchased the last five years, it's probably tracking so many satellites, you can just collect your data as you go and post-processing it, you know, I don't know, maybe it's going to give you an extra 10 centimeters, maybe 15, but for the most part, the trade-off just isn't worth it. If you rent a
1: device, um, like let's say I rent Trimble sometimes from this one company here in town, uh, when I just got to do a small project, uh, how do you know that you're getting real-time correction? Is there an indication on the screen or something like that?
2: Um, so basically the real-time correction is um, an, a correction that's coming in from uh, the WAS satellites that are overhead and we also call them SBAS. So mm-hmm. SBAS stands for Satellite-Based Augmentation System. So all of today's GPS receivers use a correction algorithm coming in from uh, an SBAS system and in North America, the actual name of our SBAS satellites, and there's three of them over North America, they stay in geosynchronous orbit, which means they're always over us. They don't go mm-hmm. over and around the planet like all the other satellites do. The The WAS stands for Wide Area Augmentation System. And that comes in every seven seconds. And so... Gosh, it's been so long since I've used a, a Trimble, so I'm not sure where that is good in the menu. But <laughs> typically what you would do is you would look at that particular GPS receiver's sort of interface screen with the satellites where it's telling you what's going on. Nowadays, you know, we're not looking at PDOP anymore because the receivers are are good enough to give us... a a decent accuracy estimate. I, I still look at PDOP sometimes when someone's having some problems with their receiver, but for the most part, we don't look at it. But in there, there's going to be something called a diff age or a difference age and you're going to watch it count. So if I'm standing outside with a submeter receiver, whether it's a Bad Elf GPS for 300 bucks or an Arrow 100 for 3000 or a Trimble Geo for 8000 if I find where that diff age tab is and I'm standing in the open, It's going to count up to seven and it's going to go right back down. One, two, Mm -hmm. three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So, that's telling me every seven seconds I'm getting that correction algorithm from the WASP satellites or SBAS satellites. If it starts counting up, well, then I'm probably standing under a tree and it's been blocked. Because if I look down at my diff age and it says 300, that means 300 seconds have gone by since the last time I received a correction uh, from the WASP satellites. Okay.
3: Mm -hmm. I've got another, since we've got a lot of um, alphabet soup going on here, you just briefly mentioned PDOP, and, mm-hmm. uh, and I was looking yeah. on, your, on your company's website on the blogs, there's, uh, there's a, a post from a couple years ago that says, what is PDOP and why is it obsolete? So um, <laughs> I have no idea what this is. Could you please enlighten me and uh, probably a number of our, view- our listeners as well?
2: Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, people that have been doing it for a long time, um, they, they're they accustomed to the idea of PDOP. And what happened is when the receivers weren't very good, um, they they used to not be able to give us an estimated horizontal accuracy. And then even when they started to, they weren't super great. So what we got into accustomed to doing was looking at our PDOP and saying, oh, hey, look, my PDOP is... Below six, so I'm going to collect my data. And what what that stands for is um, a di- a dilution of precision. So H dop is horizontal, V dop is vertical, and and P is kind of you know your 3D positioning. Mm-hmm. Um, so what it means is a really high P dop means that the satellites above you aren't spread out evenly. And this was a really big deal when we could only track GPS the american gps satellites and if we get underneath tree canopy and all my satellites sort of above me and to the northwest the west and the southwest are all being blocked but i'm getting all my satellites on the other side of me then my p dot value is going to be really high and when i see that high p dot value it used to tell me oh hey you know what my position is not going to be very accurate and I'm just going to kind of roll with it because I have to collect a point here no matter what. Um, But nowadays there's so many satellites that I usually, we used to get excited if the PDOP was below six, you know, in the 2000s, but now I usually see the PDOP below two. So it's just something that we don't really think of unless we have a client that's saying, Hey, you know, can you look at my data and tell me why I'm not getting very good accuracy? And, um, the nice thing, if, they, if they're if they using a mapping app, like say, you know, Ezra Collector, I'll use that for example, because a lot of folks are using it these days. You can actually, when you collect your point, you can collect all the additional metadata. And when I say metadata from the satellite, that's your uh, horizontal vertical position, how many satellites it used when it got your position, the time, PDOP, differential age, and uh, diff status. You know, was it GPS? Was it DGPS, meaning I was getting my sub-meter corrections, whatever. So, sometimes Mm -hmm. I'll have clients Mm -hmm. and they're using a really high accuracy receiver and they're saying, hey, how come I'm not not getting a few centimeters? How come, you know, I'm getting two-foot accuracy? And I will still sometimes fall back on that PDOP because if I look at that PDOP and I see the values high, you know, six, seven, eight, or something like that, then, you know, that helps me drive back around and go, okay, well, where were you standing? And inevitably in those situations, I find out that they were like right up against a building. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, I expect you to have a poor beat up because the building's blocking half of the sky above you. That explains why your centimeter grade expensive receiver is doing two foot accuracy because you're up against that building.
1: Right. Okay. Well, that th- that leads me into one of the questions we had on here, which was about how GPS technology has changed in the last 10 years. That sounds like it's clearly one of them. We've talked about a few others, but what are some of the, the big things that you could pull out that uh, have really changed in the last 10 years on GPS tech.
2: The biggest thing has been the additional constellations coming available to the public. So I think the Russian glow and became available to the public around 2011, 2012, the um, Chinese BeiDou. There's still not a ton of them coming over the U S so it doesn't make a ton of difference, but those came online. I want to say around 2015, the one that we're most excited about in my space is the European Galileo Constellation because um, they started deploying it around 2016. Uh, it's supposed to be completely deployed by 2020, which means all of them will be in orbit around the planet and operational. Hmm. There'll be 30 of them. So that's 33 or so of American GPS, 24, 25 of the Russian satellites, and then 30 of Galileo. And the best part about Galileo they're all brand new. So Mm -hmm. as a constellation, Galloway is actually going to be better than the American GPS for a while because the U.S. Air Force is always rotating out the older satellites. So all these additional GPS satellites are super awesome. The other most exciting thing is that by splitting up the GPS into its own standalone GPS, GNSS, RTK receiver that can Bluetooth connect to my phone or tablet, the prices have come way down. You know, you mm-hmm. mentioned doing RTK work, you know, used to be you had to have twenty-five to $40,000 worth of equipment in one on-site base station with a ham radio and one <laughs> rover with a ham radio and the base station sending information to that rover and you're running around the site collecting data. Well, now we've gone from that price all the way down to say $8,000 for an RTK rover that I can connect to my phone and then through cell service somewhere down the street, next city over, I can get my centimeter grade corrections uh, from that base station through cell service. So, those to me are are the, the biggest, most exciting things is the additional satellites and just the immense price drops we've seen both by getting technology more advanced and less of it, less of equi- the equipment that we actually need on site and just, you know, the cost being driven down by advances in technology all the time anyways.
3: Sure. Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm interested in the fact that you're, you pointed out the uh, phones and the tablets there because that's something that comes up on this podcast all the time. How we're using phones and tablets in a bunch of different situations that uh, they weren't originally invented for, but have been incredibly useful. Uh, what what does the software look like? What what kind of interfaces do you have then on the uh, on the phone or the tablet that you take out into the field to use with this GPS? Is it all extremely specialized and particular to the receivers, or do you have more generic stuff that can be learned and uh, skills transferred from one set to another?
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, most of today's mobile mapping applications, whether it be Collector or Wild Note or some of the other uh, man or not manufacturers, but software makers, it's almost like the mapping apps you saw back in the day with a gray screen. But instead, let's take that ability to collect high precise, highly uh, accurate data, and let's almost drop it on like Google Earth on your computer, but then cram it on your phone. Right. So now I've got a live aerial image on my background. I can see all those dirt roads so I can navigate better. Um, but I'm getting my accuracy from my my standalone Bluetooth GPS receiver because, um, you know, cell service is kind of 5 to 10 meters depending on how far out in, in the bush you are. As far as the actual sort of workflow, what I have found is that both for myself and for when I was a project manager and now with this company, is people retain the workflows way better now because we're all walking around with a smartphone. So if I go all winter and I don't collect data and it's springtime and I got to get out in the field, within an hour, I'm going to remember all the things I need to do. Whereas with old Windows Mobile GPS receivers, man, you go winter without using that. And I used to spend two weeks trying to remember all the different tips and tricks (laughs) and how to do everything. Um, So it's, it's really beautiful to see How easy it is for people to maintain today's mobile mapping apps, uh, regardless of the manufacturer. But typically, it's going to be like a a map interface, and then you can collect points and lines as you go. But the beauty is you can take your project boundaries, your access roads, uh, any other features that you have existing, load it in before you even get to the field. And then it's almost like walking around with uh, ArcMap. Uh, as we use ArcMap from desktop software crammed into your phone. And now you're collecting data live with it.
1: Hmm. That's pretty cool. That leads us into probably one of our last questions, given the time left in the segment, because I answer this literally all the time. If somebody asks me, what are the most common questions I get? It's this one. So I'm interested to hear your sales pitch on this. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> is our phones and tablets rugged enough for using in the field? You know, you look at a Trimble, which is, you know, something that's so recognizable to at least archaeologists, And other people in surveying. I mean, they are built like a tank, right? That being said, I've seen so many screens cracked, but we won't go down that road. But they are built pretty rugged and pretty thick and tough. And then you look at your phone and I've got my iPhone 10 in my hand and it's this glass, you know, thing that seems relatively like I could break it in a second. So what's your answer when people ask you that? Are they rugged enough for the field?
2: I love that question. I really do. <laughs> so, <laughs> when I got into this, uh, I was worried about that too. And at the time, we settled on Apple iPads because they were well, the only tablet really that had survived uh, sure. some of the early tries and had a metal case for as back as one case. So, I didn't have to worry about it being like a laptop where you drop it and explodes into a ton of different plastic pieces. <laughs> the other beauty about it and, you know, Props to LifeProof, uh, case maker. The iPad's is the only tablet you can get inside a good, not only rugged case but waterproof case. Yeah. And so, it's our company since 2013 has been shipping iPads in LifeProof cases with an anti-glare screen protector added to it uh, to about every state in the U.S., including Alaska and Hawaii. You know, people go out and they use it and they ship it back and I got to find some wood to knock on. But in all these years, we've not lost <laughs> any uh, as far as uh, being damaged or cracked screens. And it comes to the fact, and you hit on this, you hand someone a Trimble Geo and they go, wow, this is built like a tank and they do stupid stuff. You know, they, they mm-hmm. throw it across the stream they're about to cross and uh, I've seen it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, hand yeah. them a, you hand them a tablet and all, of those, all bets are off. They're like, oh, well, hey, I got to be careful with this. Um, so I I don't have any problem with phones and tablets in the field. People generally take care of it much, much better than if you hand them a a ruggedized Windows device.
1: Wow. I never really thought about that, but you're totally right. They just think it's this, you know, more, uh, hands off kind of thing. Like they don't want to destroy it. So they take better care of it. That's a good point. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like getting a rental car, you know, drive it like a rental. <laughs> there you go. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, Paul. All right. Well, we're pretty much out of time. We're going to hit the app of the day segment next. But first, where can people go to learn more about your company and to rent or buy devices from you guys?
2: Yeah. Great. Thank you. So they can visit our website at agsgis.com. And uh we've got a blog on there with plenty of great articles and we also have information on rentals and purchases, or they can give us a call at one-eight hundred-nine eight zero four six four nine.
1: All right, perfect. And I really do have to uh congratulate you and applaud you for your blog because so many companies are just out there to sell stuff and nobody's interested in education and and really just talking about things. And I think, you know, your your blog posts there I've read a bunch of them so far when I talked to you uh about a month ago about this. And they're just they're just really good, well written posts about just really candid, you know, things that you guys are doing and dealing with. And and it's you can tell that you're you're really into this and you're not just in it to sell stuff and make money like some of the other bigger companies out there.
2: Hey man, I really appreciate that. Um we, we do work really hard to try to just educate folks even if they don't buy or rent from us. I, I have plenty yeah. of phone call conversations with people just asking questions and I may never hear from them again, but <laughs> you know, if it helps them get in the field and collect their data and get out, then I'm happy because I'd spend a lot of time living in hotels and eating Subway. So I know where they're coming from.
1: <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Indeed. So. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Matt. And uh, over the break, we're going to try to convince him to come back for the app of the day segment. But until then, we'll be back in just a second. Uh, the links to everything we mentioned, including the website uh, that Matt just mentioned, is in the show notes. Back in a second. Pulling up to Mickey
2: D's just for drinks.
0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss, and if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.
1: All right, welcome back to the App of the Day segment, and our guest, Matt Alexander, is joining us for this segment. So, Matt, as Paul and I Often don't either. You don't have an app, but what do you have what do you have for us in this segment?
2: <laughs> yeah, so I came across this little device. It's called a link. L-Y-N-Q. And it's a pretty cool thing. I, I can think of a lot of uses for it. You know, if you if your listeners want to head to their website, it's l y-n-q-m-e dot com, dot com. And it's a pretty cool device where basically you have two of them, you know, they're bigger than a stopwatch, but they still fit in your hand and they've got a little carbiner to hook onto your backpack. And what you can do is you can sync them together and it will help you tell where the other person is. So, it's a very simple display. It'll say, you know, the person's name, uh, the distance and feet. And then it's got a little, almost like a compass that kind of uh, spins around in a circle depending on where they are in position to you. And, you know, having kids and dogs, I love the idea of being able to, you know, hook one of these to my dog's collar if we're out hiking or something. But I also, from a field survey component, like the idea of it, because I, I personally have spent a ton of time in northern Nevada. And uh, mm-hmm. with all those mountain ranges there, I mean, they're real short. So, you're, you're up, you're down the next valley, up again, down the next valley. Yep. And so, when we used to do surveys with, you know, two persons per team, Sometimes it could be hard finding that other team. There's no cell service out there. Um, so I can see how this device would actually be pretty cool to kind of help you keep an eye on on where that other team is. Or maybe your partner, if you guys are doing kind of wide transects and, and there's a lot of veg uh, that you're fighting with. So that's kind of my little toy that I'm looking forward to getting my hands on and playing with. I'm nice. on the website nice. right
3: now. It looks really, uh, very interesting. Looks like it definitely would have use for, uh, for field archaeologists, anybody doing survey work. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It looks pretty neat. Anything that's, that doesn't rely on cell service that you can, uh, use to connect is, is pretty good. I used to do that with, um, but not, not very many people have one of these. I had a Garmin Rhino. And, uh, yeah. The Rhino, you could, yeah, you could send texts through the basically the radio signal to other rhinos, which was pretty mm-hmm. neat. Mm-hmm. But no one, yeah. no one ever had a Rhino. So I've heard I barely ever used it. <laughs> and then mine broke and I didn't replace it. <laughs> are you supposed to buy those in pairs? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> well, the Rhino itself is like $500. So or at least it used to be. So they were not super cheap. The, the Rhino because it's GPS and radio all in one. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was something. But. All right. Well, thanks for that. The link for that is in the show notes, so check that out. Uh, Paul, what do you have?
3: Okay, so this one has absolutely no real use for archaeologists, as far as I could tell, other than it's a cool little app that I saw here at the school I work and it just highlights to me some of the some of the neat things that you can do with your phones. Um, it's called C Neuroscience, and it is by let me get the full name of the lab. It is by the Genetic Science Learning Center from the University of Utah. It's a, it's a free app it's for iOS, and basically what it is is a little simulator of um, different kinds of vision, and it, with uh, little explanations of why certain things would uh, would be the way that they are. So very simple uh interface it has a you know pass through from the camera and uh two little icons on the left one for it's a human eye and one looks kind of like a cat eye or something mm-hmm. um and a little scroll and you can go through different kinds of color blindness and nearsightedness and macular degeneration and like and get an explanation of the um of why these things work on a um, on a physiological level but then the real fun things, when you click on the uh, the animal eye, you can see things more or less as other kinds of animals would see it. So it starts out with a very, very simple eye, a sea squirt, and then works up to things that have better vision uh, through dogs and spiders mm-hmm. and eagles and so on. And it's it's really cool it, it's just, um, you know, when we first started with the uh, with the tablets there was uh there was a lot of push towards you know educational apps and so i think we all saw and there must have been a dozen different ones um you know the uh the frog dissection apps right mm-hmm. and a lot of different anatomy apps and this is just another one of the same sort of uh, same sort of lines of uh, you know how one would build a program again it's for uh, the purposes of an adult who doesn't need to use it for teaching something i think it's not going to last very long on uh on anybody's phone but it's worth just taking a look at because it's it's well put together and uh and the scientific content is you know it's grade school appropriate but uh but it's it's well done it's really nice and uh and clean so this is just uh you know one of those things you download kind of on a whim and play with for a while because it's fun
1: Alright, I'm going to record, Paul, you saying this isn't really applicable to archaeology and then just insert that for you so you don't have to say it every time you do an app. <laughs> yeah, so cool. I know. I start everything with that um, and then we usually figure out a way that it might actually be applicable for archaeology
3: yes. but this one, you know, most of I'm my exposure a hard to time. apps is here at the school that I work and uh, yeah, we use archaeology in the curriculum a lot but we don't actually go out and do real archaeology so um, nice. I'll bring in, you know, learning programs too when I have to.
1: All right. Well, I am going to, in the editing process, copy and paste you saying that into mine, because mine also has nothing to do with archaeology. Is it actually um, an app, though? It has an app. Well, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> Cheater. I know. No, it is an app. It is an app in the sense that it's mostly a web app, and it's called Dunsafe, D-O-N-E-S-A-F-E dot com. And I'm mentioning this because weirdly uh, i work at a co-working facility that's not the weird part but i work at a co-working facility and i have an office and i moved i moved offices upstairs uh where i'm at here just a few months ago um just just because i needed you know some different style of space and uh there's two desks in that office and the guy that uh started a couple months ago that's now my office mate he works for this company called dunsafe and i heard him talking he's done, does a lot of sales calls that's what he does his sales and i heard him talking and i was like man what he's talking about sounds a lot like WildNote. And of course, I work for WildNote as well. And it turns out Dunsafe is kind of the WildNote, but specifically for safety. And I'm mentioning this because there's a lot of companies that might be listening Mm. to this or people that work for bigger companies that have very specific safety reporting requirements. And I'm thinking about companies that work on mines, things like that. So they have the web application, which is really, from what I've seen so far, it's really more for the administration of a safety program. You can have training modules on here. He showed me the whole back end on this thing. You can have training modules. So if you've got like an onboarding training that a lot of companies do, you can set somebody up with an account. They come right in. They go right through the training modules. They can watch videos. They can do, you know, uh, they can be graded, scored, whatever needs to happen. You can do all that right there. And then it marks that you've actually watched these things. You can also report incidents, report near misses, report whatever you have that needs to be reported. Within here, and then it goes to uh, it goes to the person or people that you designate, and then they can go through an incident investigation like checklist all through Dunsafe, and all of this is fully customizable as well. So when I said they, when I was thinking app, I always think mobile apps, but of course web apps are apps, but they do have a mobile app for um, at least for iOS. I was actually trying to look around on the website to see if they have a. Android app as well. And I imagine they would, but I honestly don't know. I have to have somebody with Android uh, download it because I didn't think to ask before I came downstairs to record the podcast. But uh, the web app, the mobile app is just for incident reporting, which is pretty great. So if you got people out in the field and something happens, they can instantly, you know, once they stop the bleeding, they can (laughs) open up their app and then go in and then immediately report this incident. And it goes to the safety manager or whoever's in charge of the system. And then they can start taking action on the incident because I know like, man, we're working in mines out here in Nevada, the whole MSHA thing. I mean, when something happens, MSHA needs to know within a real, a really, really, really short period of time. If somebody dies, they have to be notified within 24 hours, I believe, if not, if not quicker. So having these sorts of reporting systems is really great. And there's a lot you can do with it. I mean, they've got form builders in there that will allow you to do a lot of different things similar to wild note, but I would say if you're going to choose a platform, you got to think, what am I doing the most of? So if you are if you don't have a robust safety system, then use WildNote and create safety forms within there. But if you do have a high focus on safety, but a little use for other forms, then use something like Dunsafe for your safety reporting. And then you can create other forms that are kind of in the system that you can use for different things. So yeah, it's really interesting how he was placed in an office with me and we do virtually the same thing, but for different industries. So very, very similar deals. So anyway- Uh, I just wanted to mention that because I think a lot of companies that are listening right now or people working for bigger companies could definitely use something like this, even from a, just a training standpoint, not even really the safety aspect, but just from onboarding training and ongoing training, the the ability to view and track all that within that platform is, is, uh, is pretty great. So anybody have anything else?
3: No, I'm tapped out. I, uh, I don't even have any (laughs) archeology span apps to talk about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. All right. Well, uh, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
2: Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I guess until next time, um, we'll be going. Now, uh, on the next recording, I just want to let people know in case you want to go check this out again, and I'll I'll leave a link for this in the show notes as well. Uh, We are interviewing Simon Young from Lithodomos VR. And some of you that are long term members might remember Lithodomos from geez, a couple of years ago. Well, they got a ton of funding, like right after we did that interview with them. They got like something like over a million dollars in funding. They're an Australian-based company. And I've been able to play with some of their virtual reality stuff. They 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 basically go do highly detailed scans and computer renderings of ancient cities that are famous. Like one of the ones they started with was Pompeii. You download that app from the store, and you can pop it into like Google Cardboard or something like that, and then virtually tour these areas with sounds and all kinds of other stuff included. It's really neat. So they contacted me a few weeks ago and said, "Hey, we've got some new things coming down the line. Maybe it's time to do another interview." So that's what our next interview is going to be. So if you want to check that out in advance of the interview, uh, head over to Lithodomos VR, and I'll put the um, uh, I'll put the link in the show notes for this episode, Archaeotech forward slash one hundred seven on the ArcPodNet website. So. Look forward to that. And uh, again, thank you, Matt. Thank you, Paul. And we'll see you guys all next week. Take care. Thank you.
3: Thanks for listening to the Architect podcast. The links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com/ slash Contact us at chris at com and paul at com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening.
1: This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective.
2: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
1: Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.
2: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks?